You're looking fresh today. Did y'all get some new clothes or something? Excellent. Well, I hope you guys had a great Christmas. Um, for those of you who were here on Christmas Eve, it was such a blessing to be together. And, uh, you know, just two days after, we've got church. We're here every Sunday. So glad to be with you all. Um, as we enter into a new year this week, um, I'm, I've just been praying that God's blessings would abound toward all of us. Uh, I pray that especially for this church. Um, uh, I'm expectant for what God's going to do in this next year uh, through us and in us as a body of believers. And, uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're here today. If you're visiting with us, if you're here with family or friends from out of town, we welcome you. See the noise right over there? Wonderful people. And uh, it's been good. It's been good being together. Now, over the last 12 weeks, we've been making our way through the book of 1 John, and today we are finishing that book. So, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. Um, next Sunday, we're going to be starting a new series. Any guesses on what it's going to be? Second John, yep. And after that, third John, you guys got it. <laughs> So we're going to be studying the next two uh, epistles of John over the next two weeks um, and looking forward to that. Then after that, we're going to start another book of the Bible because in this church, we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible. And the reason we do that is because we believe uh, that that gives us what has been called the whole counsel of God, that God's word is what thoroughly thoroughly equips us to live a life of godliness. And so we love God's word, and so we're just going to dive right into what we have in 1 John 5, beginning now at verse 13. John says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, John has expressed several times throughout this letter the reasons for why he's writing to the church. Some of these reasons he's expressed, mainly in chapter two, we see that he's writing so that we may not sin. We see that in chapter two, verse one. He's writing so that we would know the truth. We see that in chapter two, verse 21. And he wrote so that we would not be deceived. We see that in chapter two, verse 26. And then notice that as I'm saying this, I'm saying that he wrote these things to us. Because this letter and this book that we have before us open is as much for us today as it was for the original hearers, the original audience that John was writing to. And the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to write these words, and they are true today as much as they were back then. And so he gives one final reason to the church and to us for why he's writing in verse 13. We see there that he is writing so that we may know that we have eternal life. So we've talked a lot about eternal life throughout the book of 1 John. Uh, and the reason John emphasizes eternal life is that, um, is that life comes to us by believing in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And, and John is encouraging us, those of us who believe in Jesus, that we would continue to believe in Jesus with full assurance. That, 
that we would be confident in the eternal life that we have in Jesus. And hopefully, as we've been going through 1 John over these last 12 weeks, that that's done that for you, that you have an assurance of your salvation. Now, this letter, right, was written to those of us who already believe in Jesus. And yet, when we started 1 John, we decided that as a church, we would every single week give a very clear and direct invitation for people to come to Jesus. Uh, We've been um, giving the gospel every week and and you've been hearing it go out and and a good number of people have believed. Um, And and as people have been believing, um, I just, I love it, (laughs) don't you? I love it. I love seeing Jesus save people And, and maybe you are one of those people, maybe you're one of those who during the series, you've received Jesus as your savior. Uh, if that's you, I just wanna let you know that you've made the very best decision to follow Jesus. And, and as a church, what we are committed to is that we're committed to do life with you. We're committed to walk with you in this journey of faith that you have with Jesus. And one of the primary ways that you will uh, continue on in what is called discipleship to Jesus, this adventure of faith, of following Jesus, one of the primary ways that you're gonna do that is to do what you're doing right now. And anyone who's been a believer for any length of time knows that what we're doing right now is we're gathering together, sitting under the teaching and the proclamation of God's word as we're receiving it into our hearts and into our minds, we're allowing it to renew us and to transform us. That is really uh, one of the primary ways that God will do this. Again, the Bible calls this being a disciple of Jesus. And so those of you who have made a commitment to faith in Jesus, again, um, we're having a baptism on January 16th. Um, I'm excited for some of you who I know are um, signed up to get baptized to make that declaration of your faith. So, and, and here's the thing, guys. Nothing, another thing I've been praying for is just as, um, as a church, especially for those who have been believers for maybe a lot longer, you wanna consider yourself a new believer, you, you maybe consider yourself more of a seasoned believer. Well, I believe that nothing will fan into flame just the absolute stoke that happens in the church than to see the gospel spreading with power by the Holy Spirit. And look, guys, we are in partnership with Jesus on his mission to reach the lost with the gospel. And that's what God's been doing. That is what God has been doing. He's been giving eternal life. And so John says this. He says, knowing that we have eternal life, that's gonna do something in our lives. And what will it do? We'll look at the next verse, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So when we come to Jesus and we receive eternal life from him, we get this certain confidence Right? There's this level of confidence that uh, comes with being a believer in Jesus. We have this confidence that comes from God, and, and then we have this confidence that, that is directed. Now look, the confidence comes from God, and, and the reason it does is because we serve the Most High God. You know how it works, right, where, sorry, on your, on your own, you're just not really that confident, but maybe uh, you get with somebody who is a little bit 
uh, bigger, maybe a little bit more bold, and, and your confidence goes up, right? And a child might have this with their parent. I know, you know, my son just feels so confident with me and because I'm bigger. Maybe not as bold as him, but I don't know. I feel confident with him. But not, you know, maybe you feel that with a friend where you just, you've just got this friend and you're with, you're with them. And it's like, man, my confidence goes up, right? Well, how much more true is it than if we have God as our father and Jesus as our friend, that our confidence is gonna go up. So this is where our confidence comes from. It comes from God, but look at where it is directed, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. So our confidence comes from him, but then it is also toward him, that because of Jesus, there is open access to fellowship with God. We have this newfound confidence whereby God can be approached boldly. Hebrews 4.16 tells us this. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Then it says again in Hebrews 10.18, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So because of who Jesus is, that he is the God-man, that he is our high priest, and because of what he has done, that he died on a cross for our sins, we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We have been given direct access to the holy throne of God, and we can just come before God boldly, confidently, right? And this access that we have to God is found most profoundly in prayer, that we get to talk to the God of the universe. How epic is that? Look at verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so what is John saying? He's saying that as Christians, we can be confident to God in prayer. That word confidence, which I've said a lot already, it, it means to have freedom of speech. That's the idea of that word, to have freedom of speech. So when you pray, do you speak freely to God? You should. I mean, you're able to. You can speak freely to God, that when you come to God, you can just talk to him. And, and you know, a lot of times I feel like when we pray, we think that we need to have a certain kind of eloquence. I think that's just kind of silly sometimes. You know, when we talk to God, we should be coming to God as if we're just talking with a close friend. That's what he wants to be to you. And, and the confidence that we have toward God is just that, that he can just be approached like a, like a father or like a friend. And so you can approach him about anything, at any time, and he hears you. And you see, with prayer, and we all know this, with prayer, half the battle is just doing it. It's been said, you want to humble a person? Talk about their prayer life, <laughs> right? Half the battle is just doing it. Half of it is just asking. James says we don't have because we don't ask. And so go ahead, ask God about anything because he wants to hear from you about everything. Do you realize that? 
And, and I think we complicate prayer more than we need to. Uh, I'll be the first to admit that I often obstruct the simplicity of prayer. That I sometimes forget that God is just looking to talk with me and spend time with his child and he longs to hear from me. And so when we pray to God, we can just come to him. And, and look, it tells us in this verse that we can ask him to do things. See, God loves to hear our petitions to him. That's not the only time God wants you to pray when you're asking him for something. You know, what if that was the only time your child talked to you was if they were asking you for something? They're like, that's kind of the situation, actually. But see, God wants to talk to us about everything, but certainly God is happy to hear um, your prayers when you just want to ask him for something. Notice in the middle of verse 14, though, that there is a, a condition to asking anything. The condition is that we can ask for anything, but if we expect God to do it, it must be in his will, right? If what we ask for is not in God's will, we can still ask him. That's fine. You can still go to God and ask him, but you can't fault God if he doesn't answer you in the way that you want him to. But if we ask for God, and if it's in God's will, we can have this high level of confidence that what we pray for, we receive. Essentially, this is how you can approach God because of the access you have in Jesus. You can essentially say to God, God, you promised it, so Lord, do it. That's the kind of confidence you can have with God. God is so pleased to do his will. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all of the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yes and amen. And so if you know of a promise in the Bible, you can just come to God and say, God, you said it here, so Lord, would you do it? And God is pleased to do that. He, he will say, yes, of course, Amen. The word amen just simply means so be it. Let it be. All of the promises of God found in the word of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Now verse 15 says, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked for. Now guys, is, is all of this just sounding too good to be true? A lot of times we read scriptures like this one, and, and it sounds too good to be true. It, and I think the reason why is because we often doubt the goodness of God. A lot of times we think of God as a reluctant giver, that God, you know, just is sparing with his blessings. But that's not what my Bible tells me about my God. You see, if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, and if the things that we ask for are in line with his will, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. John is like, dude, if, if you know, I like, John probably said dude, right? He's like, if you know it's God's will, pray and expect it to be done. Expect it to be done. And so go ahead. If you think that this is too good to be true, why don't you just go ahead and see if this is really a thing? See if this really is so. And so here's your homework. You guys are getting homework at church today. You guys are not excited about homework, are you? Okay. Your homework for today is to ask God for something today. Go to God in prayer 
and ask God to do something in your life. Ask in faith, right? James says not to have this double-minded doubting, but believe as you pray that God hears you and that God will actively respond to your request. Look in your life to see God fulfill. Look to see him answer it because he longs to do this for us. And, and if you really want it to work, I mean, if you really want to see something like that happen, try asking something that you know with confidence that is according to God's will. Like you know. All you need to say is something like this. God, you promised in your word to your children that you would do this. And so Lord, would you do it in my life? Now, Here's a really good promise. Here's just like a case study that you could use. James 1.5, this is a prayer that could be prayed. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And look, when I was 19 years old, I was reading through the Bible for the first time. I came to the Lord at 17. At at 19, I was reading through the Bible. I got to James, and I read that promise in the Bible. And, And what I did is I prayed that prayer. I asked God for wisdom. And guess what? He answered it. You know what? I'm confident that God answered it because before that, I wasn't very wise. But after I prayed that prayer, I had this new wisdom that had come from the Lord. I had this new ability to understand the things of God and to be able to even teach the things of God to others. A change happened in my life after I asked for wisdom because I came to God confidently in faith and I said, God, you said in your word you would give wisdom if I asked and you would give it without report. You just pour it out on me, so Lord, do it. And guess what? The Lord did it. And so what are you gonna ask God for today? Ask him because he hears you and he loves when we approach him in this way. This is called bold faith. God loves when you just come in boldness of faith and ask him for things. Now, John is gonna make this really practical and in the next few verses, uh, John gives us a case when we should pray and a case when we should not pray. You're like, wait, hold on a minute. I thought you just said I should pray about anything. What are you telling me that I, there's a situation when I should not pray? I thought, I thought we should just pray all the time. Well, look at the next couple verses, verse 16 through 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. And you're like, okay, what is this about? (laughs) Well, John is giving us a situation here. You gotta really think with me. The situation is that there was a time in which prayer would be appropriate. And then there's a situation when prayer would not be appropriate. And and as I read this, it it seems to me that the original audience, the the first century church, was picking up on what John was putting down. They They understood what he was talking about, maybe because it had to do with a certain situation that was going on in their local church. Um, But as we read this, 
It's a little hard to understand, right? But, but we're going to seek to understand what John is saying. And the very first thing that I want us to see as we seek to interpret these next couple of verses, verse 16, I want you to see there who John is telling us to pray for and who's telling us not to pray for. This is important in how we understand what John is saying here. Look at verse 16. Do you see that word, brother? You see it? The situation involves a brother, and that, and that word brother speaks of a fellow believer in Christ, someone who has fellowship with God, and, and if we have fellowship with God, we know we have fellowship with one another, and that as brothers and sisters, we are the family of God, amen? If you know Jesus, you are a brother or sister in Christ. So John is talking to uh, this church about a particular brother or or speaking of brothers who are committing a sin. Now, now if you see a brother or sister committing a sin, what should you do? Well, the first response should be that you should distance yourself from them. You should slander them. You should gossip about them. You should tell the rest of the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ have you heard what such and such a person is up to? <laughs> no, <laughs> right? That's not what we're supposed to do. We'll silence there because we're like, ooh, you know? Maybe that is a little bit of my approach. What we should do, John says, is we should pray for them. And look, it probably means that if we see a fellow believer sinning, that first we should probably pray for them in secret. Because sometimes what Christians do is they use, you know, corporate prayer times as, you know, holy gossip circles, right? Look, believers in Jesus still sin. (laughs) If you say that you have no sin, you are a big phony. (laughs) You are a faker. And, And anyone... If anyone does sin, which we we know that we do, we have an advocate in Jesus. And when we confess our sins to God, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Have you learned a few things in 1 John about how to deal with sin? I hope you have. See, we're a family. We are a community in Jesus Christ. We are a church that has responsibility for one another. That if we see one another caught in any sort of transgression, that we would gently and humbly and graciously and lovingly come to one another in truth, uh, humbly, confidently seeking to restore one another. And, And look, As Christians, we are saved individually. Each person has to come before the Lord on their own. We are saved individually, but we are not saved to individuality. We are saved into community. We are saved into relationship where we have brothers and sisters in Christ and because of that we have a spiritual responsibility for one another and so if you see a brother or sister in sin and they are not going to the advocate for themselves, who should be going to the advocate for them? You and me. And I hope that you see that this is what we're supposed to do. I hope that if you guys, listen, I hope that if you see me sin, 
that you would pray for me. And, and if I see any one of you in sin, I will pray for you. Because we know that if we pray, we are going to the one who can actually do something about sin. God is the one who can remedy sin. He is the only one who can make right what is wrong. He is only the one who can cleanse and to forgive us and then to give us life and restoration. And so look at verse 16 and 17 again. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, All wrongdoing is sin, verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And so the instruction for us is that we are to pray for believers who may have stumbled into sin. And maybe as you hear that, you can think of that friend, maybe that family member of yours who is not in church with you right now. And you know that they've been stiff-arming the Lord, you know? Pray for them. Your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your, your, your friend, your neighbor. We've got to pray for the people in our lives that are caught in sin because when we go to God confidently and we ask, we know that God will give them life because it's his will to do that. Now, as we pray for people who have wandered into sin, I believe that this is the antidote to us judging and condemning people, which is not our role to do. Um, The Lord is the one who is the judge and before him people will stand or fall. And so our role is that we would pray and we would ask God for his will to be done. Now, now I know what you guys are waiting for me to address. You're like, that's great, Daniel, but what in the world is John talking about when he says that there is a sin that does lead to death, and we should not pray for those who commit sins leading to death. Come back next week, let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So, um, here's the thing, is that I'm not gonna be shy in telling you that this is a really hard verse to interpret. Um, I I came to the conclusion last night at about 10 o'clock, Okay, that's it, that's where I'm at. I I kind of reassured myself, that's my view. And I was gonna go to bed, and then I went back and looked at it for another two hours. Because it's like, what is it, Lord? What does this verse mean? Because this is probably one of the hardest verses in the Bible to interpret, and there are varying interpretations on this text. I'm gonna give you today the interpretation that I I think is most accurate. It doesn't... there's still some things that I'm not comfortable with. It's got a little holes, but, but the problems it does have, I'm, I'm most comfortable with those problems. The other interpretations have problems that I'm, I'm not comfortable dealing with. And so every interpretation for this verse has a little bit of like, uh, is it that? So this verse isn't super clear. And, and for 2,000 years of church history, I mean, commentators have been struggling over this verse. But remember that when we find verses in the Bible that are not clear, what should we do? We should interpret them by what is clear. See, there's a principle of hermeneutics, big word. There's a principle of studying the scriptures where scripture interprets scripture. 
And it's also important that as you're studying your Bible that you study a, a, a difficult passage, a difficult scripture in its context, where you find it, with what is around it. And so the things that are clear to us, the things that are around this verse, we've already read and we've already talked about. And so what is clear is that a believer in Jesus Christ has eternal life. Isn't that clear? Verse 13 says that. It's very clear. A person who believes in the name of Jesus is a brother or sister in Christ. They have eternal life, meaning that spiritual death has been conquered for that person. That's clear. What else is clear to us is that John is writing to believers, that he's been doing so throughout this letter. He's been calling us children of God, little ones, brothers, right? We are the family of God. We are eternally secure in Jesus. And so what kind of death is John referring to when he says there is a sin that leads to death? Is he referring to physical death or is he referring to spiritual death? Here's where it's a little challenging because throughout most of 1 John, John has been talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. However, I believe that this part here, I believe that John is referring to physical death. Now look, others may hold to a different view, and that's fine, uh, but I think that John is saying, because he's talking to the brothers, right, the, the children of God, I think that John is saying that a child of God can, a, can commit a sin that leads to death. Whoa. What sin is that? You're saying that there can be, in the life of a believer, a sin that leads to physical death? What sin is that? I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't say with any certainty. But look, doesn't all sin lead to death? Right? Doesn't all sin lead to death? However, it seems that there is a sin, and, and some have tried to put categories around sin, giving different degrees of sin, using terms like mortal sins or venial sins. Now, I don't believe that Scripture gives us those categories, and so I don't put sin into these sort of categories. Sin is sin, and all sin leads to death. John even says that all sin is wrongdoing. All sin. So all sin leads to death. But there are these two situations, these two cases in Scriptures where it seems that there were these believers in Christ, these true believers who believed in God and followed Jesus, where they sinned in a way that God brought death upon them. We see this in Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five. Super trippy, crazy story. Go read it for more homework. And then in Corinth, Paul says that there were people that were getting sick and dying because they were taking communion in a sort of uh, irreverent, non-examining way. And, and so this is the view that I hold to. And this is what my, one of my pastors, David Guzik, uh, who has written a wonderful commentary. This is what he says about the sin that leads to death. He says this. Apparently, a believer can sin to the point where God believes it is just best to bring them home, probably because they have in some way compromised their testimony so significantly that they should just come home to the Lord. So this seems to be a chastening of the Lord, a discipline of the Lord that this brother doesn't lose his salvation because that's not possible. 
Some people interpret this to say that this is somebody who's been apostate, somebody who was saved and then now isn't saved, but I don't hold to that view. You might hold to that view, but, but I don't believe that scripture teaches that. But the brother is in a place where because of sin and because of the hardening of conviction in their heart and not responding to the correction of God, God says, okay, come home. And I think that this is what this verse means. But look, maybe a more appropriate thing for me to say would be, I really don't know for sure. And when I get to heaven, I'm gonna find out. (laughs) And I'll tell you. (laughs) But you'll already know. Okay? Can I be honest? I'm gonna be honest to say that a lot of times when I'm teaching the Bible, I wanna get it right. I wanna get it right. I think that's the shepherd's heart in in me. I want to get it right. I want to give you guys the truth. But there are certain scriptures where it just seems that God has allowed there to be this sort of secret, this mystery around it. And I guess we'll just find out. So there's things that we know. We know we have eternal life in Jesus. And there's some things that we just maybe don't quite know. And, And look, I don't know that I could ever put somebody in that category where I would know that there's a person who is sinning to such a degree that I would stop praying for them. Okay, maybe there's a few people I would put there. No, just kidding. Look, if you were to put somebody into that place where you're gonna say, okay, I'm I'm just done praying for that person. That's between you and the Lord. But can I just ask you, have you done everything that you can to go to that brother or sister and to admonish them in the Lord? and to humbly go before them. And if you're gonna put somebody into that place, you know what, before you do, ask again. Go to God again and pray for that person. Now, I'll give you one other interpretation that people think that this could possibly mean, the sin that leads to death, and some equate this with what has been called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus talked about this when he was with the religious leaders where they were face to face with Jesus, the Son of God, and they were calling the works of the Spirit the works of the devil, and these hardened religious leaders were basically in a continuous and ongoing rejection and hardening their hearts to the gospel and to the person of Jesus. They were hardening themselves to the testimony and the witness of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus said, you can say things all about me all day long, but if you say that about the Holy Spirit, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And some have sort of equated these two together. I don't think that that's what this is, but if you hold to that view, that's fine. And here's while we're on the subject, is that as we're talking about the sin that leads to death and we're talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as a pastor I've counseled with a number of people who think that they've committed this sin of blasphemy with the Holy Spirit or they've committed this sin that leads to death. They feel that they've done something so terrible that God cannot forgive them. And listen, if that is you, if you have that concern right now, I'm just gonna do this. I'm gonna pray for you that you would not needlessly be bothered by such a fear. You see, if you're here today 
I, I don't think you have to have concern. Simply come to Jesus. You've heard what is clear. You've heard what is true about Jesus. Just come to Jesus. Receive life from him today. And, and listen, have confidence toward God. Be confident of who you are in Jesus. Sometimes we lack the confidence that we ought to have. We think we've done something, we've sinned in some way, that we've fallen to some low place that God can't now rescue us by his grace or pick us up in his mercy. And here's the thing, if you hold to the view that I presented to you, that the sin that leads to death is when uh, God brings a believer home and just says, come on, come home, you're done here. Then that is actually an act of God's mercy. That's actually a work of his mercy to say, come home. And then there's one more thing that I'm gonna say about all this and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up is this, is that this is what else the sin that leads to death tells me. It tells me that as Christians, we need to keep a short account of sin. I got some new white shoes for Christmas. White shoes are dangerous. You get one little scuff, one thing, and then it's like your shoes don't look good anymore. <laughs> I love white shoes, but how do you keep white shoes white? Got to keep a short account of sin. If you get a scuff, you got to clean it. And you got to clean it, you got to clean it, you got to clean it. The same is true of our spiritual life. If you get a scuff, if you fall into some kind of sin, you have to confess that. Ask God to cleanse you. Continually come to God for cleansing. Confess and repent of sin. Sin is not to be messed around with. Sin is not to be harbored. We shouldn't get good at hiding sin, you guys. We need to continually confess and repent of sin and allow the blood of Jesus to cleanse us. And that's how this is consistent with verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. This is home team, guys. We're, we're gonna go a little bit longer. I know I'm going longer, but you guys got five more minutes for me? You good? Everyone okay? Or I can just pray. We can end it. No, okay. I just got a couple more minutes. Because here's the thing. If we've learned anything in First John, we've learned about Jesus. And we've learned about ourselves. We've learned about the real Jesus and we've learned about the real us and continually coming to God that he might give us life and that he might cleanse us of our sins. See, when we come to God, we're not gonna be sinless, but we should certainly be sinning less. As Christians, we cannot make it a practice of sin. We can't harbor sin in our life. We gotta continue to look more and look more like Jesus. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Guys, we know we're from God. We know that we are to not live our lives like the world lives. Uh, we are overcomers, remember that. We learned that just recently. We overcome the world by the kingdom of God. We overcome the flesh by the spirit of God and we overcome the devil by the victory of Jesus on the cross. In Christ, the devil can't touch us. The victory of Christ has been won and we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. Satan can nag at you. He can buffet you. He can shoot those darts at you, but you have the whole armor of God and you are able to resist the devil, to stand firm against him.
because you are an overcomer. He cannot touch. And the idea of touch has the idea of grasping onto and holding onto. The devil cannot grasp and hold onto a believer in Christ because you have the victory of Christ and you are sealed with God's promise. So claim that victory. Now the world can't claim that victory. This text tells me two things that the devil can do to those who are not in Christ, those who are in the world. He can touch them, he can grasp onto them, and he can hold them in his ways. The world is held in the devil's power. The world is in the sway of the evil one, Galatians says. But any power that the, that the devil has is power given. But Jesus disarmed him. And he is powerless against the people of God. And so Jesus, if, if you are not in Jesus today, if you are still in the grip and the sway of the evil one, you have not confessed your sins to Jesus and said, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Thank you for dying on a cross and being risen from the dead. I believe that testimony Save me. If you've never done that, do that today. And God will transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. See, no one needs to be there. No one needs to remain in a place of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus said is the unforgivable sin. The, that just means that, that if you're gonna keep rejecting the gospel, you're gonna keep hardening your heart to this good news, and you come to the point where it's a settled, hardened rejection, that's the only unforgivable sin. Every other sin can be forgiven. Every other sin can be forgiven. So God will forgive you no matter how terrible. If you think that you've committed the sin that leads to death, Jesus will forgive you of it today. If you think that, even think and, and yet want rescue, God will redeem you. Verse 20 to 21, because we are in the grip of God Almighty, this is what we know. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God in eternal life. That's all super clear. They, that takes no interpretive skill. <laughs> Listen, the Son of God has come. Do you know that? Okay, good. He's given us understanding. Do you understand what you've heard today? Yes. We know him who is true. God is true. Do you believe that? If you believe in Jesus, you belong to the one who is true. You are in Christ. And this last statement is so perfect. It says he is the true God in eternal life. Do we know that, Calvary Chapel Palace Verdes? We know that. So the final verse of 1 John Verse 21 says this, little children, keep yourself from idols. Love that. Sort of an abrupt ending, but it's such a good ending. John wraps it up and he says, family of God, children of God, let's stop messing around with lesser things. Keep yourself away from anything that would take God's place in your heart. Jesus is the only one who is worthy of your full affection God is true and he is eternal life. Keep yourself in the light and the life and the love that is Jesus. Abide in him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. God, thank you for the words that were declared 
that are truth, and you are true, and we look to you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen, amen.